Hi, I'm Robin Wiseman, and I'm the Senior Policy Counsel at Coin Center, and welcome to this episode of Tangents. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to have Michael Casey with us to talk about the three questions that I'm asking a number of people about cryptocurrency. So many people that are listening, probably anybody who's listening, already knows Michael Casey by name, but just in case there's somebody out there that does not know who he is, Michael Casey is Coindesk's chief content officer. And prior to that, he spent 18 years at the Wall Street Journal. He was a senior advisor at MIT Media Lab Digital Currency Initiative. He was a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And he was a co-founder and is now chairman at Streambed Media. And in addition to all of that, as if that wasn't enough, Michael Casey has authored two books. One, The Age of Cryptocurrency, and the other is The Truth Machine. So welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, So I've started a little thing. You're the second in my, you're the second in my series of asking three questions around cryptocurrency, because I think that while there are a ton of interesting issues in the crypto space that you obviously write about and think about and talk about and lecture about often, one of the things I find really interesting is the people in the space and how the people in the space came to find cryptocurrency, what got them interested and what's kept them involved. And With you, obviously, there's a ton to talk about. So I think let's just start with the first question, which is how did you find cryptocurrency? Like what got you, what got you interested to begin with? Sure, Um, and and, and maybe I'll use this as a segue because um, when you mentioned the two books I'd written, I've actually written five, but I almost said it's a bloke. I meant two books about cryptocurrency. It's very important, though, that I mention that those those were co-authored with my my former colleague and good friend Paul Vinya, who I think probably went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole about the same time that I did uh, in in 2013. I think Paul may have even been been ahead of me, uh, but the two of us ended up like launching BitBeat, uh, which I, I'm proud to say. When people look at how mainstream media is finally getting crypto yeah. now, I like to point out that's actually something I want to talk about. Okay, we'll get bit. to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that for sure. How did I get into it? So so. Um, you know, I, I was covering foreign exchange. I was a currency uh, columnist. I used to write columns for, for the journal at that time on big, big picture themes, the global global macro economy. But I was very interested in currencies, which is what I'd done most of my life as a forex reporter, and then as a uh, a bureau chief in Argentina, different places. The currency was always this big thing I was focused on. So, what is this weird Bitcoin thing that emerged in the middle of that? There was the Cyprus uh, uh, crisis, for example, or rather the the um, it, it, and ultimately, at that time, we, you know, the, the price rallied, and 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 people wondering what's going on. Why is why is Bitcoin doing this? And I decided to look at it, and I didn't write a particularly good article. I I, I just was confused. I had no idea how a currency could just be created out of a computer. I didn't really grasp what was going on. Uh, I don't think I wrote a terrible piece, but I wrote one that I think just. Gloss, really just glossed over what was going on. Um, and, and I think it probably ended up as like, you'd be crazy to get into this bubble-like, tulip-like sort of setting at the time. And um, I was called in by um, a bunch of folks who were getting into Bitcoin at the time, entrepreneurs. Jeremy Allaire was one of them. Uh, Barry Silbert was another. Um 
Uh, Raj Date, who had been uh, previously the interim head of the CFPB, was at this, this, this place. So it was a gathering of folks who were investing and interested in Bitcoin who invited journalists to come. And I was like, oh, this sounds intriguing and interesting. And some of those names were somewhat familiar to me. And I was like, why are they involved in this sort of weird offshoot of a thing? Um, and we had a really interesting dinner. And um, somebody started just explaining to me, it was either Jeremy or Barry, um, how there was this core um, solution to trust and that th 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 would be really valuable in a developing world setting where there is not the same foundation of, of money that, that we have in, in, in the US and the West. In places that have got these sort of broken financial systems, it would be valuable to have this you know, trustless mechanism for people to have uh, a money that they, they could use. And I'd spent six years in Argentina. I mean, it's why I wrote about you know financial crises all the time, and it was an integral part of why I see things because I'd been living through this. Argentina was a formative experience for me. Um, I like to tell people that if you want to understand how money works, it's really good to look at how it doesn't work. <laughs> yes, and Argentina is a good place to understand how it doesn't work because you get when you do that, you start to dig into the breakdown of the social covenant that a national currency is supposed to represent between the, the promise of its, 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 its value and the substance of that and, and the maintenance of that system and all the bits and pieces that go into it, including the banking system, that the government essentially you know, maintains with its people. If that covenant breaks down, if the trust falls apart, it, it all falls apart. That's why Argentina has cycles of hyperinflation and then deflation when they start. It just... It, it's, a, it's an ongoing problem, and anyone who follows Argentina will know that they're in the middle of one yet again. Um, and so it, I, I've started to understand that. I would understand it from the perspective of institutional breakdown. So we would always think about, okay, so they need to have less corruption, and they need you know, uh, a government that they can trust, and their politicians need to be more honest. And I would dig into why does that not the case? Why can't they get it? And I realized it was a vicious cycle they couldn't get out of because of you know, corruption begets, you know, lies and begets stealing. It's just an ongoing cycle. But I'd never thought that you could actually substitute that process for a different governance mechanism entirely. Um, so when I saw that, I, that was the that light bulb moment. I was like, wow, we're talking about a replacement of those institutions, not, not improving the institutions, about thinking about a system and then from that, you start thinking about what is money and how, you know, where does it come from? So, so the, you know, it, it was very much my experience, I think, in the developing world. My, my wife is an anthropologist. She studied Bolivia and Bolivian migrants and the problems that they face in terms of their own sort of uh, um, unbanked and unidentified status and oh, concept of the informal economy living on the edges and without that base of institutional identity and structure people are excluded, right? And so that has always been the stuff I've been interested in. I'm two years in Indonesia, a year in Thailand. And so I've always thought about that. And um, just the very idea that in a digital economy, we could leapfrog somehow into a different structure was fascinating. And that, and that idea, I'm sorry, that idea came to you. So we have Jeremy and Barry to thank for planting that seed in your head. <laughs> I now work 
indirectly. No, I yeah, obviously. <laughs> that's, full disclosure, uh, yeah. yeah. Full disclosure, Barry still, but yes. Bounder owner of DCG is the owner of Coindesk, yes. Um, but that, but that, so, but what was it that when you decided you, you went from saying, okay, that now we can have a central, a decentralized way of having money mm-hmm. and you can see the value of that. And what brought you from that to deciding that you and Paul should get together and write the age of cryptocurrency? Like I mean, how, look, did that, how did this book come to be? And actually for those of you who can see, <laughs> there it is. You can't, everybody, if somebody might be listening, but I'm holding up a copy of the age of cryptocurrency. And we'll get back to this in a minute because right. there's an interesting story here. Great. But, um, so, so, you know, I, look, I just wrote a column um, pointing out why, and I said at the top of the column, um, why I feel so privileged to write about this space is because I get to write about not just any old disruption, not just the disruption of, of like the technology that we've had for the last 10 years or 20 years, mm-hmm. not even one that we've had for 100 years. We're talking about the disruption of, of a system that have got the centuries and sometimes millennia old. So this column was literally about Bitcoin this versus is, gold. This is, I was going to say the Bitcoin versus gold column. It was excellent. Right. Yes. Gold is 7,000 years old as a system. And now we have this. And now we have this. And it is. And, and then one answer that, that when you throw that out is go, well, that's crazy. It's 7,000 years old. How could you defeat that? And that's a good question. It is hard to overcome something as entrenched as that deeply culturally embedded concept because ultimately it's all about story and narrative which is what the column's about but the point i'm making is that now is the time because we we have we have transitioned from an analog world that 7000 years that's an analog world we now live in a digital economy anybody who doesn't think the digital economy digital economy has transformed us that software isn't eating the world as mark andreessen says uh, is living under a rock, right? I mean, I mean, right. it, it, we have been absolutely transformed by this. And so we need a transformative new system of money that lives in that world. So when I kind of realized that and saw that, I was like, there's nothing more important in the world to write about. I mean, this, this is, why would you want to write about anything else? If you Certainly in finance, right? I mean, I, I, I say this yeah. in, in my recruiting efforts at Coindesk, and I'm proud to say I've brought in some very, very talented, very, very um, well-accomplished journalists to lead different divisions within Coindesk. Because that's the story I tell them. This is the most exciting story in finance. There's nothing more bigger than writing about the transformation of something that's 7,000 years old. So, so yeah, I mean, to me, once I got it, it was a no-brainer. I was going to just do this. And I, and I was, the other thing I'll say is I was so – I think Paul and I both were very uh, inspired or intrigued or just sort of fascinated by uh, the, the characters involved in this space. I think one of the most – sort of absolutely charming experiences, certainly those early days of Bitcoin was like the dreamers that it would bring in who were just saying, I'm going to create an entirely new, different system of money or an entirely different governance system. And they and they did it. I remember meeting, meeting Vitalik Buterin at uh, the North American Bitcoin Conference at the end of 2013 and thinking this 21-year-old has just built what he thinks is going to be a world computer. I mean, just that very idea is, is profound. So. Um, Look, it's 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 the idea of transformation married with this incredible enthusiasm of the people around it, and the journey of ups and downs, of failures and successes, and the the whole process that obviously gets a lot of critique and sometimes mockery from the outside world is an integral part of this very still very early stage change that we're going through. 
all of that from a writer's perspective is wonderful. It's yeah, it's rich. Know, it's rich. It's it's a it's a rich narrative filled with interesting characters and fun yeah, twists yeah. and turns. And you haven't even started talking about the policy issues. Um, but I would also just say that um, in 2015, at the time that you wrote the book, you have I went back and I looked at some old <laughs> interviews that you had done, some lectures that you and Paul had given. Yeah, and right. no, they were actually it's actually really cool to watch. Like, but um, but you, but you talked a lot about us being at a crossroads, mm-hmm. right? And we were at a crossroads of, like you said, these inventors, these dreamers, these true believers who have created this system and mm-hmm. sort of the mainstream world and where these two things were going to come together. So I might be kind of getting a little out of order with my questions, but I did want to ask you, where do you think we are now in terms of those crossroads? Like, where have you think that we've come? Where do you think we've come since 2015 mm. in that in that in that paradigm? Do we still? Because in some ways, I feel like I feel like we've come so far, and in some ways, I feel like we still are facing a lot of the same tensions. Um, so yeah. So I think I think we can. Uh, I think we're used to things happening really quickly, and so we can be impatient, right? And we think it's going to happen tomorrow. And so, um, look, I just talked about this being a 7,000-year transformation of the making. You know, you don't snap your fingers and change that overnight. <clears throat> so I still think we're at a crossroads, right? If you, if you step back in time and you take a 7,000-year view, the, the last five years is a tiny little spot on that. It's going to look like a crossroads if you step back just far enough, right? So I That's still think fair. we're there, right? But I, still, I definitely think we're moving closer to just, you know, figuring out how the branching off happens. Um, and I definitely think that, that you know, you know, maybe we are getting ahead of ourselves here, but let's just mention, I mean, Go for it. <laughs> the, the onslaught in the last, um, you know, few months even of these big names in, in uh, certainly on Wall Street and uh, in, in business. Absolutely. You know, I, I, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, the biggest fund manager in the world, $7.5 trillion of assets under management, talking about the properties of Bitcoin as a replacement of gold. You know, even just speculating as he was, he wasn't sort of all in, but he was certainly just giving it that uh, possibility as something to entertain as a thought. And all those other names, I've seen the Paul Judah Jones, Guggenheim, Fidelity, and, and Cities, Fitzpatrick, and these, these, these people. PayPal. PayPal, Square, others, all very much involved. Visa most recently, right? So this is stuff, you know, I don't want to toot our own horn, but Paul and I were saying this stuff, you know, in, in, in the age of cryptocurrency, that there is this moment where you're going to see some of these institutions go, we need to be in on this. And I, and I think that if you combine that with the macroeconomic backdrop, right, the COVID crisis, the, the looming debt crisis that I think is going to have to get figured out how we're going to pay this thing off, money printing, which, by the way, I'm not necessarily opposed. I think I don't think central banks have any choice but to print money right now. The, the model absolutely demands it. But at the same time, it's inherently challenging the very notion of what is our money, along with climate change, along with the fact that, that, that the Bitcoin itself became the inspiration for central banks like China's and you know the ECB to be really moving much more rapidly than we ever expected on a central bank digital currency. And that's arguably raising questions about the hegemony of the dollar in the global unit, U.S. financial system. Yes. There's a lot happening at once right now that really does feel as if there's a reckoning underway and that one way or another, 
this technology has to be a part of it in some form. Um, so that's, I, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm more convinced, the conviction is stronger than ever that we are at this, this critical moment of transformation. I think I could not agree with you more. And I, I actually just want to go back for a minute to something you said when you were talking about how once you realize the importance of w- what it meant that there could be some sort of system that didn't have to rely on a centralized government that could be used to exchange value and create value and store value, that how could you not write about it? Well, that's great. And I'm so thankful that you felt that way because not a lot of authors and reporters did feel that way at the time. I think that one thing that's really hampered the development of cryptocurrency is it's how it's been reported in the media. And so I really, when we get, we can, we can go, actually, why don't we just say that we're now firmly in the, what are you doing now question of the the discussion, because we we can't help, we can't help but go there. But you said at the time, you know, how could you not write about it? Well, you, you were very unique, you and Paul, and just maybe a handful of others. I can't even, maybe two others. At, back in 2014, 2015, when this was, 20, and when the Hill was first starting to have hearings and mm. things were like Mount Gox were happening and people weren't taking the time to really understand that it was a technology, mm-hmm. not just these companies. Um, so really, thanks. <laughs> but, I, but I think that it's, but what I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is well, you say, how could I not have written about this? But why do you think that so many others shied away from it? Well, I think that like we see the world through um, the strictures of um, the framework that we've grown, grown up in, right? So, again, I think I was very lucky to have um, lived all over the world, and so I, I think that my frame, though I, I don't quite see the world like other people, so I'm open, I think, to new ideas. And I don't mean that to be uh, any, anything like a boast. I literally mean no, that that is it's, that's, it's your experience. That's I mean, the structures that we have, right? And so. And I know that, that, that there's so many other things I see in the world that I'm like a blinkered blind old man on that I can't think outside them. The arguments I have with, with somebody in my household about BTS, for example, is, is, is <laughs> that I won't say who it is. Um, <laughs> we don't have to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> don't go there. Um, but, the, um, but, but the point is that, um, you know, I, I think that becomes difficult for folks to not see it. So the first thing you think about when you see Crypto is crime, and you're like, okay, that's bad, um, right. and and uh, and no one's going. But they're looking at the they're taking money and a dollar for what it is for one, right? They're saying this dollar is this stable reference point that has no politics associated with it whatsoever. It's just a thing that exists and always will be, like it, like it's a like it's a universal truth. The dollar is the dollar, right? Which of course it's not. It's right. a completely politically constructed concept, right? And it is only as good as the faith in which people have in it. However, we use that as our reference point. In fact, I have a criticism of plenty of people in crypto for this reason, because we obsess with the price of crypto yes. in dollars. We're using this thing. We're already at that point. So you have to be able to suspend, suspend disbelief and think about, uh, okay, let me. Qu- if I can question that, then I can question this. And then when you do that, you start to look at what it is that underlies money and therefore what underlies Bitcoin and is it therefore worth something questioning forget all of the activity that's going on around it because that's that's a that's all that's a function of the of the fiat world we live in there are people constantly scamming and do we, we know from every moment 
in which technology has gone through, you know, these huge innovative shifts that there's always scammers and snake oil salesmen and everything happening around. There's, always there the first adopters, the early adopters of any new technology it, 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 are it, always it, the criminals. Right. It, it, but it's, it's, it's an opportunity. Like it's, it's, it, there's always dreamers and there's always people who get duped. And this is a feature of every big technological shift. Um, invention of the, uh, you know, the limited stock company led to the tulip, you know, the tulip bubbles and those sorts of things, the bubbles, the, the, the South Sea bubble, those sorts of things all came around the emergence of, of, of the development of capital markets and things like that, right? So we've had all these times where this stuff happens, but it doesn't mean that the underlying idea isn't profound and transformative. And you have to be able to think outside of the strictures of that existing framework to be able to see that point. And I said, some people can. And I think that's what's exciting about this moment because, you know, when I think Michael Saylor is a really interesting example. I mean, I, I think some people think he's gone over the, up the deep end a little bit with how extreme he's, he's now getting into Bitcoin uh, from MicroStrategy. But, you know, he had a tweet back in 2013 saying that, it, you know, it would be short-lived or something. It was right. days were numbered. Um the statement that, that MicroStrategy put out when they decided to shift all of that money to Treasury that explained why Bitcoin is this incredibly important notion of a store of value in these times was really well framed. I was jealous of how well it was written. I should have pulled out the quote so I could say it again. But it, the, 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 the idea of understanding um, the permanence of, of the system and, this, and, the, and the security uh, of the system and and how its entire network builds upon itself was um, was a really profound level of, of grasping its depth and so I found that to be very encouraging especially now that all these other names are sort of coming in after it people are getting it so it means they they're getting outside of that structure that that you know yeah. uh, uh, that that echo chamber and and are able to step out saying oh I can look at this thing differently right now. Yes, and, and that's exciting, right? That is super exciting. And I think that it's also exciting that there's a difference between getting in to chase it as a store of value or some investment that you feel like you missed out on, so you're chasing the tail of it, versus getting in because you understand the important function that this technology, the transformational function that this technology can play in our society and the reasons why. And I think now the more we see people getting in and the reasons they're getting in, I should go read that statement, which I don't think I've actually read, um, but talk about the importance of the technology. That I think that is a real turning point for, I think that's a real turning point and it's an important thing to note. So I'm glad you did. So, okay, but let's talk about, so what are you doing now? What, what, what is your day job like as at Coindesk? Yeah. So, um, look, I, I, I got into this because for the same reasons I, I said before, you know, like biggest story in finance, um, you know, biggest story in 7,000 years. Why wouldn't you want to tell this story? You know, um, yeah. and, and I hadn't, you know, but at the same time, you know, I had a lot of fun at MIT, really enjoyed it, uh, had a um, good time working on some cool projects, including one that I'm very pleased uh, is now being run in a joint project between MIT and Yale, which is this open solar project, which is all about how do we use um, <clears throat> solar uh, installations and IoT devices to essentially create a form of collateral 
that you could then remotely lend against. And so it's about unlocking finance through. So let's, can we go back? I just want to understand that. So you have, you have solar and you have IOT, internet of things. Yeah. And are you having like machine payments or how does that work? Like how are you? It's, 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 you know, the the biggest challenge we face it is, is like, you know, is, is, is once like everything, regulation, the SEC is getting, you know, can, can we, but, but but setting aside the, the law, which of course is another construct, yes. what we're trying to do is create a, a lending environment in which I could lend to a remote community and without and so it's a form of security, a form of collateral. How do I turn how do I create a mechanism that could turn on or off a device remotely so that my rights as the investor are protected if people aren't paying me? And the that that's not so I could be draconian and force rules on people, but rather so we can unlock capital, drive down the cost of it, and and push money out into uh, remote settings and build solar systems on that basis. Because we felt like the, the, the ideal system would be that. And that the idea is that, and we've got prototypes up and running in Puerto Rico dealing with this, which is really nice to be able to do in the wake of the hurricane, which knocked down all the the um, you know the, the power lines. And so we've, right. we've been able to build something around a school at a place called Ibanito. Um, which is, you know, it's all about self-determination. You have this mechanism to, to build your own solar systems, but you also got access to, to capital from, from people afar who can... So it's like you're, you're giving, you're allowing the intellectual property to be lent for a time it, to build I don't the system. Intellectual property, rather just, it's your, it, it's like, it's like, you know, your house is your collateral when you have a mortgage. And if you default upon, upon it, somebody comes and forecloses it and they get the home, right? Right. How do I create a de facto version of that? So it's yours. Your solar panels, your solar system. Oh, the actual but, panels. But you, okay. You can't, you can't use it if you stop making payments on it. There's some level of blockage, right? It's a, it's a, right. it's a collateral. It's a form of security. And the idea is that if the the power gets diverted back to the grid rather than to you, so oh, and, and the, payment, the payments are turned on or off. That's the basic idea of it. it it's a it's it's like anything that MIT Media Lab does. It's an experiment. We're trying this stuff out. A lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. And we're excited about the prospect that goes. A guy called Martin Weinstein is now running it. And it's a very cool project. And do you, is it is that it's, it, it uses a blockchain? Yeah, so they're using Stellar, uh, I believe, unless it's changed. Um, I think there was some other things, but Stellar was the the, um, the system they were using. It's a blockchain, but there's also you know payments using. Oh, using uh, yeah, it's worth looking at. Uh, open, it's called the Open Solar Project. It's on the DCI website. The digital. I'm writing it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. And and the Yale Open Innovation Lab or the Sci Center for Open Innovation, I think it's called um, Martin Weinstein's project. Um, yeah, that that was a lot of fun. But I, I'm not a I'm not a research scientist. I'm not so good at uh, uh, you know pulling together research teams and the, the rigor of academia. I'm I like writing stories and I did a lot of public speaking. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of speaking in the last four years. But I realized that hey, I'm a I'm still a storyteller. I'm still I'm still basically just t- when you. Um- when you speak publicly, who mostly is asking you to speak? Well, I mean, uh, it's funny how it's coming in waves, right? For a couple of years back, I was doing a lot of this. Uh, now it's all remote. I'm doing a lot more again now, it seems. But I mean, um, for a while it was in the in this 2017 kind of boom. Uh, it was everybody. Um, you know, I, I would there would be financial sort of types, so you know, investment. Groups and trade trade associations. Um, so that I, you would say that that's like sort of people trying to understand how cryptocurrency. Right, large, a lot of it was like just just educational stuff, mm-hmm. trade trade events that sort of thing. 
um, that, you know, that, that was when I was doing a lot of that public stuff. Um, we did a lot of speaking at MIT through their own, you know, industrial liaison program where there were all these different uh, um, companies that support MIT. But a lot of it also was um, with um, a whole lot of other independent groups. But yeah, I mean, every every industry in many respects was interested in this. I was talking to media groups. I was talking to real estate groups. I was talking to um, energy groups. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot. And I mean, there were there were obviously still loads of blockchain and crypto conferences as well. Um, well, they're yeah. different these days. Yeah. Yeah, they have changed a lot. They absolutely have. They were, yeah. they were wild back in the early days. But the um, the I meant the online. Making, I meant the online thing. <laughs> oh, everything's changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything's everything's changed. I meant that. <laughs> every, 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 every yeah. Changed. We look. Coindesk, you know, big asset is consensus, and it's it's going to be. Uh, so yeah, I just saw it's going. You made the decision that it's going to be. Yeah, we're going to year, try so. to. Um, we're going to try to uh, add if we can at some point some hybrid uh, real person events if if the circumstances allow us, but. We have no choice. These are these are big events, and you have to plan them in advance. And so, you know, we're going through a virtual event. Um, yeah, I know this is not this, to take there. a little departure, but like we miss our dinner. I do too. I love those dinners. They're they're wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Last, I mean, last year it was such a quick pivot because it was in May. Right. So yeah. now, and so you've already decided that this year. How do we make it different? It's it's yeah. it's challenging though, right? I mean, it's it's. But it is. It's, it's, it, it forces you to think differently about how you put on an event in a virtual setting. So we're not going to give too much away, but hopefully we have some fun uh, experiences for people who do experience it virtually and or, you know, in some level in person. Um, but but look, getting back to the, the, this, the thing is like media was it. I, I just I always felt like um, ultimately I want to be in media. It's, it's, it's where I feel most comfortable. It's where my heart is. So, so eventually when Coindesk said, look, you've got to come in and do this, it was too hard to to say no to, um, and it's a unique opportunity. I mean, we we have a, um, you know, uh, uh, there, there's significant investment going in. We're building a team. We're you know about eighty people now at Coindesk. I was, I think, it was somewhere in the order of forty when I started. So so we almost. How, when when exactly did you start in this role at Coindesk? So in this particular role, I came in. Um, uh, you know, it hasn't even been a year full time. In January one, um, I sort of took on a part time position of that in late uh, uh, October um, of last year. So you know, sort of taking on this role, really, I suppose, for a year now. Before that, though, I was the chairman of their advisory board. So we had an advisory board, and I was it was just a small job that I did while I was at MIT and while I while I was doing my, my the company that I launched at Streambed. Um, but ultimately. Um, you know, it, it was just too big a deal. This is a, um, again, bigger story around, and there's investment being placed against it to build out, you know, a multifaceted media organization. We're, we're investing in TV. We're investing in podcasts. We're, we're building out, you know, uh, uh, news and editorial in a way we haven't before. Um, you know, and the events team is is, 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 is doing all sorts of interesting different things. So, um all of this is about, you know, really, I think, an opportunity that, that is <clears throat> a window that maybe will not be around forever. But while we are going through this moment of transformation, uh, we want to be the media company that owns that story. And so it's not just about telling stories for the crypto, you know, reader, the stakeholders as yeah. been around as well. It's how do we tell stories that the mainstream can embrace and get into? 
So, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm enjoying being back at writing again. I now have a weekly column called Money Reimagined. I've now launched a podcast of my own with Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum. A lot of fun. The two of us just had a fascinating uh, chat via yeah, it was, I listened to a couple of them as part of my research. It sounds it's definitely a lot of fun, and it's, so, yeah, it's, it's a great it's a, forum for you to have a way to talk about yeah, the narratives. That yeah. the everyday, everyday person can get into. So that's part of what Coindesk is doing, and I think that's, that's, that's what's exciting about it. Yeah, That's great. I mean, for... For me, in my world, as you know, as educating policymakers and working with policymakers, there's this interplay, obviously, between the media and policy. Because you cover policy, you cover what they're what what's happening in the world of policy. But people that are making policy look to get informed from the media. And because there have been so few people that have focused strictly on cryptocurrency and on the issues around cryptocurrency, um, it's great to have a source that is a trusted source that people can, that use. And not this, not just talking to the community, but like when people are trying to learn about cryptocurrency, now there's a place to go. And my hope is that one day, and I'm guessing this is probably your hope too, that the divide between them, it's not like no longer like, well, it's like a crypto media thing versus like the mainstream media thing. It's just to become media because right. it's sort of like the internet. When it started, everyone had like an internet division. And yeah. then now, yeah. obviously, you wouldn't we don't go have to that. Yeah. Right. Right. You're an internet conference or something, right? Yeah, yeah, right. You're not going to go to an internet. Exactly. So then eventually it should just, I think, we'll be winning when mm. it's no longer a side yeah. thing or a separate thing or a different mm. thing. It'll just be the thing. There are media there are media organizations that I think saw it coming and did well out of it. Um, I, I like to, I mean, I like to, to, to point to Wired as an example. I mean, Wired's not necessarily hugely successful, but it is. Nonetheless, I think it, you know it, it did ride this wave of recognizing that the internet was not just a story about you know the, the pipes and uh, the boxes that would be plugged together. It wasn't about machines; it was about society. It was about how how the economy would change and how how society would change. And so, you know, and they owned that story in a in a big way, and I think it became synonymous with that change. And so, you know, I, I think you and then ultimately, yeah, a publication that speaks to everything now. Um, you know, and, I, and certainly that's the way I, I, I would like to see things going as well, for sure. That's exciting. Um, okay, well, the final question is, you touched a little bit on this, but what do you see in the future? Like, what do you think's next? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I do think the financial system is going to uh, be transformed by this, and that's from the money side of things. I think that we, you know, I, I don't know whether Bitcoin becomes some sort of global currency standard, I do think it does probably become um, uh, some sort of societal reserve asset. So that, it, And it will be interesting that, that it be, if we do build a decentralized financial system on top of that, and I think that some of the stuff that's happening around DeFi is very interesting, and some of the ideas around collateralizing Bitcoin and lending against and so forth means that potentially it sits as this base layer of value that... Um, now, in a much more decentralized way, entities can come together and forge these other financial systems or financial mechanisms on top of. So that's that I think is going to be pretty interesting. Um, I, I, you know, and um, I, I do think that uh, a lot of the other blockchain applications will get traction. I I, I don't know. Again, I, I, I don't like to. So the crystal ball exercise here to me is not one of like this guy's going to win, that one's going to lose, this is going to happen, this is not. Right. But rather like. What is it about the 
particular structure that some of these concepts have that I think are going to be almost inevitably a part of our future. I, I don't see, for example, how we build um, a ubiquitous IoT-driven data-based system of smart cities and Industry 4.0 and all these things that people are talking about without figuring out how in this ultimately inherently decentralized way um, we're going to share data across each other and, and use that as the core value uh, driver of the economic resource allocation decisions within those economies without some form of decentralized governance of what you do with that, right? And, and then the, the blockchain, whether it's our blockchain, this, whatever it is, has to follow something around this idea of decentralized consensus. So these systems, I think, are inevitable because of just the, 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 the forces of change that are happening alongside them. And I think that COVID um, really raises this to a new level. We have to get a vaccine out to sort of to however many people in the world now, 8 billion people, right? Uh, with all those complex supply chains and those complex systems and how is it safe and everything else. Managing that, you know, is going to have to have some new system of governance that is not dependent upon, you know, governments because those governments, as we know, aren't necessarily very competent at managing pandemics. Um, and, and we and we as a society don't do very well under those structures. You know, identity is a critical problem in all this as well, right? I just, the, the British, uh, hand, the UK is handing out these little cards saying that you've um, you've been vaccinated. Um, but, completely yeah. forgeable, right? I mean, how do we build systems that, you know, so there's a lot of things that we're going to have to think about identity and credentials that are going to be forced upon us by this crisis. I think that's a very interesting trend. Um, I am very interested in the future of media, um, you know, not just only because I think Coindesk needs to be in front of that. We've got AI coming in media. We've got um, Web 3.0 structures coming in media where, you know, we have to think more about being a platform and, and a very different relationship with users rather than sort of just owning all of their data. How do we interact with them? Yeah. That, that Web 3.0 Web 3 concept, a lot of the Ethereum guys and, and, and now Polkadot and others are, are pushing forward with, I think is really important. Um, and, is there uh, anything in the, just in the evolution of media, which obviously is something that you're thinking about on a daily basis? Um, what about sort of the how it works with the fees instructs fee incentives and how people get paid and how yeah, outlets so, so, get so, paid and 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 one thing I'm curious about is whether there's a role for you know micro payments. I mean, we, there's a, there's been a lot of talk about metered payments and micro payments and for for instead of subscription based fees and is that something that is a real well, my, thing? My, the CEO of Streambed, the company I founded, uh, the CEO is is Jenna Pilgrim, and she's going to be very happy that you finally gave me the segue to talk about Streambed a little bit. <laughs> uh, but I should be able to do so. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> look, our view on this is Streambed's view is <clears throat> that it, that for now at least uh, the 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 currency, if you want to use those words, and I think it's I'm, I use it as a as a metaphor for description rather than necessarily describe it is, but the currency of digital media for a long time has actually been data, right? So so basically, you know, you don't when you're paying Facebook for access to all of that content that gets delivered to you in this, this decentralized platform manner, you're not. We think, oh, we're getting it for free. Isn't this great, right? That's the great bit. You're not right. paying no. with your data and your attention. So that that is, and, and basically, I think of Facebook as like a Wall Street broker. It basically takes in data, uh, uh, and, and then you know it, it it sees both sides of the market in the same way that Wall Street bond traders used to, where they could 
use that data and they can, they can control who gets access to see what and sit right. in the middle of it and monetize that difference, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we need to think about how do we change the data structure of the, of the digital media economy? Because um, right now it's all siloed in these, in these walled gardens, in these centralized systems, you know, the Facebooks, the Googles, the, the Twitters. Um, and in that world, I know that uh, Jerry Brito has had some interesting thoughts about property rights in this in this world. But um, the in that world, you know, we're all beholden. There's a dependency that we have on that, and, and I mean that as a creator, not just as a, as a user. As a creator, I need Facebook to tell me uh, where my audience is. But you know what? Facebook's going to tell me how to win my audience in a way that suits their algorithm and their needs, not me. So the data is. Is 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 really fragmented and also completely opaque and controlled by these these gatekeepers. So how do we build a system in which we can start to take data that lives outside of that that knits us all together? That's kind of what Streambed's all about. It's like we can we can take exchanges and interactions with people. You start with the origin of the media. This is where I think most people think about the future of media being a micropayments thing. So because that means like oh here's my Here's the, the the video that I made, and, and I'm going to put a digital wrapper around it, make it digitally scarce, and I'm going to charge each person who uses it. And that's great. I think one day, one day we may well get there, but right. it's not it's not an easy thing to break into because the systems are not in place, and because we are all dependent upon the network effects that Facebook and Google and else already give us. It's hard to get people to migrate from away from where everybody is. So our view is not, I mean, is, is yes, start with that idea of the origin and the unique, unique starting point, but rather than turn that into some sort of artifact that I can sell separately and, and think and, and, and charge for, use it as a provenance tool from which to trace back to for every interaction that happens and create a data trail that then becomes valuable for everybody who uses that data to put prices and allocate resources in the system to so advertisers and marketing people and, and creators themselves who need to know and be able to talk, tell stories about their reach and their impact and their, their market size and tie that story to the content rather than to the accounts within the within that wall garden structure. So, so I, we think that data is the currency. Then who, so who that, owns that content then? Well, the content is yes. The content is still owned by the creator. That that that's that's always been the case, right? That copyright tells us that. Um, you know, nothing's changed well, unless you work for a place. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, then you sign. That's that, that's also right. whatever. But you're talking about like a, a place where you have many creators creating the content. Well, yes, but we already have that, right? We have many people creating. Content. Yeah, but <laughs> and then what what you can do? So so we're trying to create it. To, that's a whole separate legal question, right? And that, and that question is is really important. And, and, and at each stage along the way, there's a legal, there's either an automatic implied contract that I am the creator, or there's some formal contract that you know you have, and so and so owns the copyright, and so and so doesn't. And each chain, there's all this is you know hundreds of years of copyright law will tell you if you have taken one video and then changed it into something else then you have rights, but you have derivative rights. The originator has separate rights. There's a whole other legal conversation. Yes. But what we're trying to say is like along the way, those whether it's people who are reworking content or just sharing it or engaging with it in different ways, each of those points along the way is a data point in different formats and everything else and different platforms. And you can create this model in which that trail tells this story of impact and reach and connection. Um, it, 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 we think it's how 
story, you know, you, you can you can create a picture of the connectivity of that people have. We're calling it relationship strength uh, between people who are interacting with that content across multiple platforms. And so I'm not beholden on one. I've got a story to tell about all of my connections in that regard. So basically data, I think, and how we figure out how to capture data and um, use it as, uh, 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 as I say, a currency, as a tool, as a metric that is independent of those siloed systems is what's really interesting. And you need a blockchain structure. We're using the Open Index Protocol, OIP. It's okay. built on the Flow blockchain. Uh, and the Open Index Protocol gives you a kind of a, a cataloging system. So you have the metadata. And things. how does and, and how do people get paid? And that's again, okay. So the, the, this is not, so the, the, the people get paid how they get paid now, right? So if, if you're an influencer, uh, you, you make videos, you so get you're not paid. talking about changing the structure of how people are receiving. Well, this is what we think this is what we think is important, right? Is like we're not trying to say how you, you could you could get charged. It doesn't, we're kind of agnostic about that. You could okay. you could charge with micropayments, but I could just get paid in dollars. The point is I've got now data that is much more reliable and much more meaningful because it's not structured yes. by Facebook or by Google. It's independent of that. It's right? free so, of all of that. So the point is like. The data becomes the means by which you tell the story, you 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 price your marketing deals, all that sort of stuff against that. That's what I think is really really important right now. And and, and I think the reason why I think it's important is because it is the economy. The da data is data is everything, and um and and so we've got to figure out how. And this is not just for me. This is for everything. We've got to figure out how that data, that really valuable data, is managed in such a way that it is fair and reasonable to both those who create it and both those who kind of interact with it and everything else, right? This is a whole question of privacy and, and everything else. So those sorts of big questions, I think, are really vital. Uh, and the future of media that goes with that, I think, is really important. You know, I think media organizations are going to have to, um, you know, really think about how they're going to, you know, I, I think ultimately the Facebooks and Googles of this world will be broken up. Um, because we're seeing all the problems that come with that that immense power. I don't know whether that's legislation. I, I would hope that it's actually market forces that do so. Um, but in that future, it's going to be a very different world for, for media companies. How do we reach our audience? How do we engage with them? How do we right. reward them? You know? So anyway, I, 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 that... Again, I, my crystal ball is pretty fuzzy, but I just know that. Well, no, I mean, it's like, hey, in, in 2013, you were thinking about this crazy internet money, and now you're thinking about this. So we'll see. We'll that's see. really interesting. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. On Tangents. It was lovely to have a chat with you. And I hope that, that you have a lovely holiday. Thanks to you. <laughs>